What an incredible invitation, right? The picture in that song of God's arms open wide. Us being received. I mean, can you picture it? God's arms open wide, ready to receive us just as we are. Most of us don't have opportunity to be received just as we are in our day to day because we're imperfect humans. But to receive the perfect love of God, to be enfolded, to be wrapped in God's arms, can you picture it? Can you receive that today? That the word that I bring you today, my hope is that that's the way you sit to receive it. So I'm gonna be reading a lot of scripture today. We're continuing in the theme of one another that we were in all fall. And so today's focus is living in harmony with one another. But the foundation of doing that, the ability to live in harmony with one another can only come from the stance of love. We have to love one another in order to be in harmony with one another. We don't have to like each other. And I'm saying that on purpose. Sometimes we get like confused with love. Sometimes we don't like each other. But we love each other. Right? There's still a commandment to love. You may not like your roommate. Don't look at them if they're next to you. But you love them your family, your friends. I mean, there's conflict that happens in life. There's conflict that just happens because we're different. We have different preferences. So we don't always like each other. But there is a commandment to love each other. John 13 verses 34 to 35 records Jesus' words. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Our love for one another will prove to the world that we are his disciples. So love really isn't an option. Unity really isn't an option, although we treat it that way. So what does it mean to love one another? Let's, let's get practical. What does it mean? Well, in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, we read, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. And the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. 
A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A Levite, a temple assistant, walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So Jesus gives us a blueprint right there for how do we love one another. So let's unpack that passage just a little bit. So the man going down the road was Jewish. The priest is Jewish. The Levite or temple assistant is Jewish. So they're all from the same religious background. They're all ethnically the same. The priest and the Levite see the man lying there beside the road and they pass by him. The temple assistant even goes over and looks at him. So it wasn't even like he had to wonder, is he really hurt? He went over and looked at him, and then he kept going. And then you have the Samaritan, who scripture says was despised. Why? Because the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. Jews went around Samaria. They didn't even go through Samaria, even though it was the shortest distance from the Galilee region to Jerusalem. They went around Samaria. That's how much they wanted to avoid any contact. So you have this Samaritan man who sees the man and helps him. Now the Jewish man, had that been reversed, likely wouldn't have done the same because they were actually taught not to. But the Samaritan man goes and helps. He goes out of his way, he takes him to an inn, he takes care of him himself, and then when he has to leave, he pays the innkeeper and then says, if the bill runs higher, I'll pay you when I come back. So he took his time, his energy, his financial resources to help someone who was different. So Jesus tells us that story so that we know the lengths that we are to go to to help one another. He tells us that story and tells us who the neighbor is so that we're not tempted to say, my neighbor is only the person who's like me. For us, our neighbor is not just followers of Christ. This story shows us that, right? The Samaritans were not following the same religious practices, the same faith system. So for us to translate that, that would mean us not, not stopping because the person that we see, we, we figure is not a follower of Christ. 
So Jesus shows us what he was requiring in that new commandment, to love one another. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi provides some additional illustration. In chapter two of Philippians, Paul writes, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ooh, how do you all sit that quiet when I read that passage? <laughs> I like people to talk to me, so feel free to talk to me. But we see this picture of Jesus doing what the Samaritan did, right? Paul is describing that same stance Paul's letter to the church at Corinth is about the importance of exercising spiritual gifts in maintaining unity. There was sharp disagreement about which people mattered the most and which spiritual practices and gifts mattered the most. And Paul goes through a whole illustration using the body and saying, you know, there's no one body part that's more important and I don't have time to read all of that here but I would recommend you read 1 Corinthians 12 if you haven't visited that for a while. But Paul ends that chapter with these words. He makes a very sharp transition in the second part of verse 31, the last verse of chapter 12. He writes, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. That's 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Meaning we can accomplish a lot, but the impact is lessened, even nullified, if love is not the foundation. If love is missing, then all that we do, including our pursuit of unity, will just be meaningless activity. Still, what is love? So one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, 
follows what I just read. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, describes attributes of love and unity. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And often these verses are read at weddings. Like an encouragement of this is the best kind of love for a married couple, and that's true. There's nothing wrong with it being read at a wedding as an encouragement for a spouse to love the other well. But we can see that wasn't the context of these passages. This wasn't a context of the passage about romantic love. It follows chapter 12, which is about disagreements on who's the most important and what the most important gift is. So this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 about love seems to be instruction on how we live together in community when there are differences. Pursuing unity requires this kind of love, patience, kindness, not rudeness, not rejoicing about injustice, but living in harmony with each other. Romans 15, five through seven reads this way. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other, just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given the glory. And then in Ephesians, Chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And then when we look at the Beatitudes, again, Jesus teaching directly, recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The New Living Translation says it this way. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. So the New Living Translation stresses that peacemaking is work. And definitions are important, so I wanna spend a little bit of time as we're talking about unity and being unified and living in harmony with one another. What are we really talking about when we talk about peace? So peace is more than the absence of conflict. It goes beyond just having calmness and serenity and tranquility. Peace or shalom encompasses concepts of completeness, fulfillment, wholeness, harmony, security, and well-being. So that's the goal, right? Not just that we're not fighting, but there's actually oneness and a completeness, well-being for one another. But often what we settle for is peacekeeping. And peacekeeping is a fragile state. It's relatively free of conflict. We're trying to maintain a trouble-free environment. The time period before or after an argument, but before true peace has been created. It's kind of like tiptoeing around after a person or an issue. You're, you're, you're going around it. You don't want to rock the boat. 
walking on eggshells. But peacemaking means creating peace. It's not passive, it's active engagement. Remember, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace encompasses the wholeness, the shalom. So scripture makes clear we're supposed to be makers of peace. We're supposed to create peace, and that requires work. Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, if it is at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And those words are important because as far as it depends on you, you can't solve the conflict or create the peace alone. All you can do is your part. It takes whoever else is involved to actually want to make peace also. So as much as it depends on me, as much as it depends on you, that's what we can do. So I want you to take a moment and I want you to think about who you have conflict with. Who are you not living in harmony with right now? You don't have to say it out loud. I just want you to have that in your mind. It could be a person, it could be a group of people, but I want you to make this practical. Who right now do you need to start to make peace with? For some of you, a face, a name came to mind really quickly. For some of you, it may be more abstract. You may be thinking, I don't really have a person that I'm in conflict with. Is it a group of people? Is it somebody that votes differently? Believes differently? Looks differently? It might be more conceptual. Who is it that you have enmity with? Maybe not active. It's not somebody you've actually ever said anything to. But conceptually, that type of person, that group of people. And right now, the society that we live in, uh, chances are a group of people came to mind pretty quickly for you. Maybe even several groups of people. And through the, the blessing and the curse of social media, we can, we can usually tap into who that group is pretty quickly. And I'm not anti-social media, I'm not anti-technology, uh, but we have to be aware of when we're being discipled in unhealthy ways. When is the conflict being stoked? Are the accounts that you follow on social media helping you to love better or are they actually reigniting a fire over and over and over again? And for those of you who know me, I'm a person who is in, I, I engage. I, I'm not a passive person. I'm a direct communicator and I have to slow myself down. And so I'm not at all encouraging you to be disengaged. As followers of Christ, makers of peace, bringers of hope, the church, I believe we are to engage. I believe we are part of the solution. 
because we have the words of truth and words of hope. So I'm not saying don't, don't engage. We need to engage with wisdom. And we need to know when we're engaging because we feel compelled by the Holy Spirit. And when are we engaging because we're being dragged into something. And we're engaging without wisdom. We're engaging and forgetting who we are. If we're engaging politically in social movements and we do that and we lay aside the word of God, mm -mm, no, that's not it. That's not it. We have to remember who we are while we engage, right? We can't become angry activists. All for activism, I'm an activist. But if I don't lead with love in that way, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So whatever you're an activist for, and I'm hoping all of you are, right? I hope all of you are. And there are lots of issues that need to be addressed. And that's part of my hope for you while you're here at Northwestern. For those of you who have heard me at orientation, some of these same themes that I'm talking about today, I say at the welcome session at orientation. We're gonna talk about the issues of the day here. And we're gonna learn how to do it as followers of Christ. Because what happens when we, the church, don't engage, where do people get their instructions? Where do we start to kind of form, here's the way that we are involved in activism? We get that from secular sources. It ought not be, right? We should be leading in that way, always through the lens of scripture, always through the foundation of love. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, this sentimental love. I'm talking about the rubber meets the road, I don't like you kind of love. I don't like you, I don't like what you stand for, you're in my way, now, now how do I love? Now how do I seek harmony? That's what I'm talking about. What does love look like in that situation? When I'm across from somebody who votes different than me. Somebody who believes differently about COVID-19 and about mitigation measures. Somebody who thinks differently about vaccines. What does it look like to love when I'm sitting with that person? And it's not pretty sometimes on how we behave, how we forget who we are and whose we are, how we engage in the methods and the ways of the world instead of remembering uh, the Good Samaritan, instead of remembering how Jesus showed up incarnate, walked among us, showed us the way by being with people who were different and loving them, by sitting at table with the person who was gonna deny him, not once but three times, by the person who was gonna betray him, Jesus stayed, always hoping, still knowing, still loving. 
Love is direct. Love tells the truth. So I'm not saying um, be nice. I don't believe in niceness. Niceness is not in the scriptures. Kindness. Niceness is usually about self-protection. When I'm nice, I won't tell somebody the truth because I don't want to hurt their feelings. Kindness says correction may be involved. Kindness says I'm going to care about you enough to tell you that I think you're going the wrong direction. Kindness says you are in danger by the ways that you're engaging sexually. You're in danger by substance abuse. You're in danger. I'm not going to be nice and watch you walk off a cliff. I'm going to be kind and tell you the truth. God disciplines those he loves. So we have to tell the truth to one another. In love, not being mean, but being direct because we love one another. Don't watch each other do something that you know the other shouldn't do. And you as peers have access to one another in ways that staff and faculty don't. Love your brothers and sisters enough to speak into their lives with truth. They may be mad at you. They may not appreciate it, but you love them well enough to tell them that they're wrong. I'm not talking about wrong right with some of the debates of the day. I'm talking when you know that this person is engaging in behaviors that are life-threatening. In the same way, so many of us struggle with mental health challenges. Pay attention to one another. If you know that somebody is isolating, if you know that somebody is in trouble, in love, be there for them. Tell them you don't have the answer, but you are there for them. Care enough. Don't be nice and withdraw, and they're even more isolated. Love one another. I've gone completely off my notes. So I'm going to look at the clock. Okay, we're still, we have a few minutes. Let me pick back up with what I want to say. But I, I really did feel compelled to say, we, we have to tell each other the truth. We really do. We have to care enough to be uncomfortable. Because it is uncomfortable to confront somebody, right? It's uncomfortable to confront somebody. But that is what true love is and love in community that says, I want to protect you. Even though you may be mad at me for now, I will know that I did what was right. So I'm going to end with this. These are strong words, not mine. James. If you spend time at James at all, you know he does not pull punches. In James 2, verse 19, he says, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish, can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So James is challenging this niceness, and he's saying the good deed is to speak truth. The good deed is kindness. But in the hours before his arrest, Jesus poured out his heart in prayer. He said, 
I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will know that you sent me. That was Jesus' prayer for the disciples that were with him, but for all who would ever believe because of their message, and that's us. Jesus prayed for us. Right before he was arrested, he was thinking about our unity. So love and the pursuit of unity can never be seen as inseparable. Love is absolutely critical for the members of a community to work together and be united in heart and focus. And we don't do this in our own strength. Jesus promised us the advocate, a helper, a counselor. So by the power of the Holy Spirit is how we do this. We can leave a talk like this and may, maybe be inspired. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit, by us leaning in to our birthright as sons and daughters, as the beloved children, we can lean in to the Holy Spirit and be empowered. It's gonna be hard, it's not easy, but we're not on our own. We have not been left alone. And that encourages me. We can, as they sang this morning, come to the altar. His arms are open wide. We receive mercy and forgiveness and grace. And what we receive from the Lord, we give to others. That same mercy and forgiveness and grace. Not because they deserve it, because we didn't deserve it, but because we can offer that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your promise. You promised us that you would be with us always, but you also told us that in this world, we will have trouble, but that you had overcome the world, and so we should take heart. And so, Lord, I pray that each of us, as we leave this room today, that we would take heart, that we would believe you, and that we would act as if we would believe you, that we would live free, that we would live as ones who were deeply loved, free. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.